the Hollywell Trust podcast testimony series, sharing experiences of those affected by the Northern Ireland conflict and those people who have taken the decision to take positive steps for the future. Now here is your host, Eamon Becker. The testimony process was initiated by Towards Understanding Healing in 2014. All of the testimony sessions took place in the junction room at Hollywell Diverse City Community Partnership. Each testimony session involved someone who has been impacted by the conflict speaking openly about their life, their life experience, their lived experience. The most recent sharer of testimony was Liam McCluskey. Liam, as a teenager, got involved in the Republican struggle, joined INLA and was imprisoned in Long Cash. During the hunger strike, he followed Kevin Lynch as a hunger striker and his testimony, his testimony session, is a very moving account of what drew him into the Republican struggle, what drew him into using political violence, what reasons he had for joining the hunger strike, what happened during the hunger strike, and what happened after the hunger strike. This an episode of the Hollywell Trust Testimony Series or Hollywell Podcast, where you can catch up on our on-demand service both on Apple Podcasts and at SoundCloud.com. You can catch up with episodes such as the Derek Murr Testimony. Uh, the flag was a week after the relief period here in the city, and Simon Mowbray, the conductor of the Churchill, stood up at the, before they played the first thing and says, this first tune we're going to play, we played it for the first time last Saturday at the Apprentice Boys Parade. And it doesn't even cause a ripple. You know, it doesn't cause a security worries and all that was at the start. You know, how's it going to look? You know, bands coming and they crossing the guild hall, they, they, you know, with bass drums and uniforms and stuff. Just doesn't even materialize. The Hollywell Stew Special Number One. Extern have been working with children and young people for almost 40 years. This is actually our 39th year. And we have always been quite innovative and try to find interesting ways to engage young people. So we're trying to build peace by bringing children together from both sides of the community um, to go on a trip to Legoland. The project is called Learn More, Use Less and it is a guide to reducing your risk to everyday environmental toxins. The artwork then will be displayed throughout various points of our city for people still remaining in those abusive relationships and the very popular testimony interview with James King and Eamon O'Donnell. Another woman came by and said, you'll never be bored. Yeah. What, how, we are never bored. We are never bored. We never, never, never bored. Download and stream these episodes for free on our SoundCloud page. Just go to soundcloud.com and look for Hollywell Trust. Or on our Apple Podcast page, just look for Hollywell Trust. Thank you very much for having me. I decided to do this because Eamon, who I'd met quite by chance, asked me to do it. Well, I might as well have it recorded before I kick my clogs every time I this. I'll start by saying just I was arrested in 76 with a number of people. One of them was Kevin Lynch, who I spent most of my time with inside. 
we were charged with hijackings and possession of firearms, conspiracy to rob firearms, that kind of stuff. I sentenced to 10 years in December 77. About a week before that, my father died of lung cancer. So it was quite a heavy period at that point. Went on to the blanket protest we had been talking about during the remand in Crumlin Road and weren't going to go along with the criminalisation policy of the British government and thought we could continue the fight inside by going on blanket protests and refusing to do what we were asked to do. So went on it. Uh, the first three months weren't too bad. Blanket and a few things in the cell. Then, around March of 78, they began the, the no wise protest, or the dirty protest. At the start, it was a gradual thing. At the start, it was bits of food being thrown into the corner and some urine put over them and all that kind of stuff to create a bit of a stink. But the problem was we had smashed all the furniture, broken the windows of the cells. Matters were on the floor and that began to attract a lot of flies and maggots and all that kind of stuff. So Then it went up from that to putting human waste on the outside walls. Kevin and myself were in the same cell at this point and it was a gradual <coughs> protest for the waste to go in the inside walls but I think one of the incidents before that which I'll mention only for the reason that there's a kind of moral to it. We used to get hosed down when we had the waste in the outside walls. They hosed down the outside walls with high-powered hoses a lot of water going into the cells, and we were getting fed up with it. Then one day I was putting out some stuff, and an orderly happened to walk past. Orderly was a, a prisoner who was doing jobs for the warders, mostly ordinary decent criminals, as they called them. We were all, we were all terrorists. I let go and hit him on the head and shoulder with the stuff. I hadn't planned it; it just happened that way. Anyway, I got. Badly beaten after that by the warders, brought down to the punishment blocks, got forcibly washed with scrum brushes on top of the bruises, and was feeling very pissed off that night in the punishment cell, and very hungry as well. And then they opened the doors and they were coming by with, you were supposed to take one slice of bread and a piece of margarine. The warder, old man with a white type of beard, looked at me, knew I was very hungry, and gave me four slices. That was enough to bring me back from becoming a bit of a hit the world because I was in a bad place <coughs> at that point. Anyway, eventually we back up into the, the H3 and the protest went on for about three years. It was like a living nightmare. We kept each other going with songs and done a few Irish classes and all that kind of stuff, but it was still tough going. But that, just that act of kindness by that warder was enough to undo all the other stuff the warders had done earlier in the day. So sometimes just an act of kindness at the right time <coughs> is enough to bring you back. Kevin, who was somebody, he was a praying man. I fancied myself as a young, young communist. Not that I knew that much about it, but I fancied that it sounded good, equal, everybody being equal and sharing the wealth and all that. As we began to argue, discuss faith and all that kind of stuff, I eventually began to consider reading, reading the Bible and thought this is the only chance I'll get in my life to to do something like this, so I began to pray. began to have insights that I didn't have before, like saying, they are, Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. 
and began to think, well, that means prison warders, that means the British Army, the police, anybody else that they have problems with. And I was finding that a tough, you know, you're sitting in among a few hundred prisoners, all beards and dirt and blankets and all looking quite fierce and tough and all that. And I thought, well, that's, that's a big ask. But I went on anyway and was trying to explore that route by keeping, at the same time, keeping within the political route. Felt it was on the blanket process, had to, had to see it through no matter what happened. I was in the INLA at the time, smaller group than the professionals, and there was only about 40 or 50 of there. We weren't as closely as disciplined, maybe, as the provost would, would have been outside. That went on, and I began to say the prayer of St. Francis, that, oddly enough, Margaret Thatcher said before walking into number 10. And I thought the line that I may understand rather than be understood, I thought, had I been born a Protestant, how would I have looked at the world? Had I been born a young lad in England, could I have joined the British Army? Could I have been brought up in a very law and order household, joined the RUC and all that? And I began to think on those kind of lines and question just my own tribal roots and just try and look at the world outside of that. But still I was there on the blanket protest, still part of all that. And it was on and on and we had thought but the talks with Cardinal Daly and, or sorry, Bishop Daly and Cardinal Fee that something might have happened. When that didn't happen and there was no break to the blanket protests without giving in, hunger strikes were called. At that point, in our wing, there was most of the leadership of the provost around that wing, uh, Bobby Sands, Ben Hughes, Ben McFarland, all those kind of people. So they had talked about and decided the first hunger strike went on with Brendan Hughes leading it. Bobby Sands wanted to go on but wasn't allowed to. He had to become OC in, in Brendan's place. Just to say about Bobby Sands that I watched a small part of the film Hunger and very bleak uh, so I, I wasn't able to watch the rest of it. Bobby was a very charismatic type who gave various classes, sang songs and even two weeks before he went on hunger strike he was up at the door every night telling us a story of two guys on a motorbike from a book that he read before he went in. And he always left it a cliffhanger every night and we were all highly entertained by it. They did say about the hunger strike that if we were going to go on hunger strike, be prepared for death. Don't go on as a as just a protest. It'll probably end in death. So we had to think about two guys in the cell above us, put their names down in a piece of cigarette paper and passed it through. Kevin put his name down and I put mine down. But after much thinking and praying and sweating about it, it wasn't an easy, easy decision, but I just felt that I had to do it. Even though at that point I knew probably that I wouldn't be involved again when I got outside. I had seen too much or had thought too much, had through prayer and Bible reading had really come to the conclusion that violence was not the way to go and that we should leave it behind really. But it was part of the protest and decided I had to give it 100%. I couldn't give it 50%. So, as you know, with the hunger strike, Kevin, after he died, he was about 6th or 7th. I took his place. and had, Again, I couldn't stop to think about him dying or grieve for him. I just had to get myself mentally prepared to go on hunger strike. And that was whatever pain, whatever anguish, whatever mental pressure came, 
keep going until the bitter end. We got ourselves into a position where we're in hunger strike. There was no way out except death, unless the British government gave in. We didn't realise, I think because we were locked away in his blocks and weren't having much access to the outside media, just what kind of moment the Margaret Thatcher was, and that she wasn't the type to give way very easily. So we were caught in a bind, and we didn't want to give in on the blanket protest. The whole dirt thing stopped the day Bobby Sands went on hunger strike. It was quietly pushed aside as, as he began. Now we didn't think the hunger strike was going to get enough publicity until Frank McGuire died and Bobby Sands was elected as an MP then. The Warren Media got involved. We hoped that might be enough to swing it. It wasn't, of course. Then we, as I within the hunger strike, it was the first, the first couple of weeks weren't, weren't that bad. But if, there was always food in the cell. Um, left in the breakfast then when they brought the breakfast out, the lunch was left in and all that. So there was always food about, you were thinking sometimes one last supper, one last this or that or the other, but you kind of resisted the temptation. I felt fine until about day 42. My eyesight began to go, my eyes began to flicker and I began to get very sick. And because of no food, there was only green stomach bile coming out and I prayed that it wasn't getting worse as after about a week of that. And then I became blind, so all that stopped. My hearing was going as well. Um, one of my ears wasn't, wasn't great already, but it had been damaged by one of the scrubbing brushes when I was in the punishment block. So that was beginning to give me a bit of jib. And I thought um, I'm going to be in a world of my own, I'd be able to hear or see. In the morning of the 55th day, I woke up feeling a loss of energy from the night before. You can't know what's happening yourself. And I thought, I might wake up on Sunday morning, I might not. Uh, I wasn't sure. There was a priest come in who I wasn't expecting, a local priest, who told me that Kevin had said to him, before he died, not to allow me to die the way he was dying. And that kind of cut me up. Although I didn't show anything to the priest, I just kept the, the hard face and thought to myself again, don't give in, don't allow yourself to be softened. And then my mother came in and said to me, she was talking to a nice specialist who said that if I survived the hunger strike, I might be blamed for the rest of my life. And I thought to myself, well, that doesn't matter because I probably won't survive anyway. And then she said she was going to take me off the hunger strike as soon as I lost consciousness. At this point, there was about two or three had come off the time I was in the hospital wing of the cage. There was, I think, three three guys had been taken off by their parents. So the hunger strike was falling apart at that point. But you felt, I felt, that we just had to keep going, that it was because of all the others that died before me and you couldn't walk away and all that. So then my next thought was, well, my mother is on her own and I should take that decision rather than allow her to take it. So I stopped. It was on a Saturday morning, the 26th of September, 81. And the next Saturday morning, the 3rd of October, the hunger strike was over. I had died in that week, had I have kept going. After the hunger strike, then in the hospital for about seven weeks, recovering. My eyes weren't good, and there was a, a bit of damage done to a nerve center at the top of the spine, which caused balance problems. But after I came back to the blocks, 
I thought I have to make a decision here. During the time in hospital, I was torn between remaining within the Republican movement or going at that point the way of the Spirit, the way of God. And I thought I can't keep a foot in each camp. Like, for example, one night, I think it was 19 paratroopers killed in Nara Water. When we heard the news and the hate blocks, we all cheered. That night, I <coughs> prayed for their souls, and I thought, you can't be doing that. You can't cheer on one hand and pray for souls on the other hand. Uh, so it was all those contradictions going on. Then, after much mental turmoil, I decided to cut ties with Republicanism and go the way of the Spirit. Then I got moved to McGilligan Prison, uh, and felt I was leaving behind a lot of stuff in the case. Uh, and I got involved in prayer groups down there, uh, prison, prison fellowship, there was a, a priest from here, Father and Karen was involved in those. And there was one incident then I think is worth mentioning. There was a young woman with a Bible under her arm coming out of a church in uh, Albert Bridge Road in Belfast. She was shot in the neck and killed by the INLA. The doctor, one of, of the guys in the prison fellowship meeting was a doctor who knew her, who knew the mother. So I wrote to the mother and we became very good friends after that. And any time I was in Belfast, I used to, used to stay at their house. I was involved in some reconciliation work then after I got out in September 83, two years after the hunger strike. And part of that was going around churches with prison prison fellowship and given testimony. That I felt after a while wasn't the thing to do. I'd walked past a couple of wee women in a church in Balamina or somewhere who were saying, that was a great wee talk, who's coming next week? And I thought to myself, well, that's, no, I've given myself here. I, uh, this is not the thing to do. So, kind of strange experience. I got friendly with Billy Wright in Portadown in 1985 and we give a talk together at the youth club in Portadown. And Billy was, had a conversion experience and said God had given him a great love of Catholics. But he had joined a small evangelical church. They began to teach him about the Pope the Antichrist, all that, and he began to close up again. That night, after giving the talk, he was coming out all this kind of talk, and I just thought the man's on his way back from where he had been. So we parted ways at that point. And then afterwards, Billy got back into stuff and ended up shot by the NLA in, in the maze. I think it was partly the evangelical church and partly his own pride that he was a hard man to put it down and he didn't want to lose that aura. His wife was a young woman whose father had been shot dead by IRS. Uh, he was in the RUC. You know, they were a very handsome couple and he could have done a lot had he been had able to move away from it, but he wasn't. And things like that then... Around 88, 89, I decided that I needed to... I was doing volunteer work with uh, Columbo House, going to places like Quarimania, and doing some work in the reconciliation field. But I just felt I needed to do something to get me paid work as such. So I then decided to go into education. Went for social science when I should have went for peace studies or area society and politics, something I could have found interesting, but I was hoping to become a social worker. Didn't get into that, and was ended up doing a housing degree, which is not to be recommended. 
<laughs> fairly bored. Anyway, then I worked for a while in Plymouth in England, came back. was involved in one meeting, I think, with Eamon here down in Lusty Bag. The guy next to me at that meeting, a gathering like this, was a former paratrooper. And the way we had to do was introduce each other. So that I found good. But then after that, I went, I was living out in the hills of Donegal, about four miles from Bunkrana. And I went through a low patch depression and all that kind of stuff. I think it's... I didn't realise at that point that there was such a thing as post-traumatic stress. I think there was a bit of that going on. Anyway, I ended up, I was unemployed at that point, uh, feeling socially isolated, fairly low. But then I got a job and working with people with learning disabilities. I'm doing that since. And that's where I've been. Now. It's only when Eamon asked me to do this talk that I've sort of come back into this kind of field again, which is, which is good, really, because... Working with people with learning disabilities is fine, but it's not where I should be, really. The main points of this, I think, to understand rather than be understood, if we open our hearts to others, to where they're at, how they think, and why they think that way, there's much more chance of understanding happening, of peace happening. We have peace of a kind here, but it's, there's a lot more to be done. And unless people begin to open their hearts to understanding others and trying to see where they're coming from. Uh, I'm not sure how long it can keep going on for, but that's... We will see. I think the hunger strike for me was the beginning of the end of the Republican movement's violence. It, it took a long time to end, but it pushed us onto the political path. And that meant that Politics have now taken over largely. There's a few, there's a small rump still active, but we've largely moved on. A few people killed, and for the families of those people that have been killed since the ceasefires, it must be a hard pill to digest because people try to forget about those victims. But if we try to forgive and try to understand, there's some hope for us. If we don't do that, there's none. Hollywell Stew event will be held on Wednesday 28th of June at 7pm. At this event we'll hear pitches from Pure Streaming, Extern, Golden Rule Project and Turning Point. You'll enjoy a great dinner while you listen to the pitches then you'll vote and the admission fee will then go to the winner. It's £10 per ticket and you can purchase your tickets right now for the Hollywell Stew event at the reception at Hollywell Trust up in Bishop Street. Booking is essential and you won't want to miss it. The testimony session was followed by two speakers. One is Orla McDevitt-Petrovich, responding directly with the ears of her heart to Liam. The second speaker responding directly to Liam is the former chair of the Londonderry Unionist Party, namely Terry Wright. I feel very moved as well, um, so I hope I can compose myself. Thanks, Liam, for allowing me to listen and everyone else. I can't actually remember the last time I've been so gripped just listening to someone talking about their life and their experiences. And I think much of that is because of how open and honest that you've been in sharing it. For me, anyway, I think it's such a broad range of 
of feelings um, based on what you've told us. There's so much extreme tragedy, sadness, and then equally on the other hand, so much strength and courage and hopefulness for people moving forward. I think people have... I mean, I know you mentioned yourself as well about you know watching the film Hunger and how, how bleak it was. I think people do have assumptions a lot of the time and have maybe fixed kind of preconceived ideas or notions and it's really important and powerful to hear from someone and be reminded that this is a real human experience for you and for the people you know that loved you um, especially you know when you were talking about your mother and the agony and the agony of those decisions um, it was you know imagining the pain that she must have been in as well and you knowing um, the pain that your mother was going through um, the effects of starvation on, on a human body as well I, I don't think is something anyone else could um, imagine um, the physical aspects and the psychological aspects I mean this human instinct to survive is, is the most powerful drive um, that we have so I mean, it, it must have been just unimaginable. Um, like you described even the period before that as, as being a living nightmare. Um, so it was so uplifting as well to hear about your transformation, um, your strength of spirit and resilience and the determination and motivation that you've had to carry that um, right through your life. Um, was uh, amazing to listen to that as well. Um, I only met you for the first time today. Um, all I knew before that was just that that brief bio that I had, had mentioned mm. to you and, and had mentioned to Eamon before as well, that one of the things that I noticed when I read it was that, you know, you were released from prison in 1983 um, and that was the, that's the year I was born. Right. And strangely for me, in some kind of strange way, that that reflects the main message that I think I would take from, from listening to you today. And that endings, a lot of people are, are fearful of endings and fearful of change and are not aware that there's always choices. And I think it's really powerful to be reminded that endings are also the symbols of new beginnings and you know, that there's always a chance for, for hope and a change of direction. Um, and I really think you and, and your story are a perfect testament to that. I'll let someone else speak to me. Oh, Karen, thank you. Orla, thank you. And um, one of the reasons for inviting Orla to do this is someone from a, a, a younger generation than, her, than, than myself. Um, so thank you for being here and, and taking this time and sharing your response. And we're going to go over here now to, to Terry. Do you want to... Terry Wright, just here to our left. Clearly not of a younger generation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the last thing I want to do is to sound trite. And um, I've been involved in politics, so... I have to guard against myself knocking down a political route because um, my analysis 
of the historical situation would probably differ to yours, and and I feel a need to say that because we all carry a particular bias. Um, but I said to Eamon that I wouldn't do that, so I'm not going to do it today. Listen carefully to what, what Orla has said, and I would share much of the same um, sentiments that she has. Um, but the first thing I want to say, and I don't want to sound trite, is I'm glad you're alive today, uh, because you might not have been. And I suppose the most moving thing um, that I felt was that your friend Kevin whilst he himself was uh, departing this life, didn't want you to do the same. And that's very powerful. And clearly you found it very emotional Mm. and moving as I did. And even now as I speak, it's a very, very very powerful thing that someone was caring about someone else. And um, again, in danger of sounding trite, you said that you might have been blind but you've shared a light in here today. You know, we're not blind as a result of what we've heard you say today. You've brought a tremendous light here, uh, an insight and as a result of your experiences. And I'm glad that I am able to share that. And I'm sure everyone else feels the same. When you describe lying on hunger strike, <coughs> I suppose what occurs to me is, why does any human being have to go through that? You know, what sort of situation, what sort of circumstance did we as a society allow to to become created for whatever reason, and I don't want to go down politics, that a human being is down that. But yet the hope you yourself identified that in the middle of it all there was an act of kindness. And that act of kindness changed. Uh, it It helped you to I suppose spiritual growth for want of another term. And you've shared your Christian views, you've shared your Christian experience, and you've been on a journey. And I suppose I would want to thank you for sharing the experiences and the growth and development that has taken place as you have gone on that journey, because that's where the light is shining that that you've brought into this room today. You've talked about reconciliation, and I think you're right. I don't think you can't fabricate it. You can't manufacture it. It has to come from within ourselves. And I suppose the lesson I would draw and the feeling I have about what you've said today is that if we want to confront demons as a community, as a society, we probably have to first confront our own demons and deal with those. Uh, because that they can act as a barrier, they can act as a boundary to understanding where the other person is coming from, which you have identified are so important in the act of reconciliation. And um, you confirm for me my own thinking, but yours is built on an experience and a depth of experience that I don't have. And uh, again, I want to thank you for sharing that today. I would be repeating much of what what Orla said uh, to go on, and I'm sure there's other people that want to contribute here today, and there's no point in me talking for the sake of talking. But again, I just want to finish where I started and to say that I'm glad you're here alive today because far too many people have died for Britain and Ireland and your words are going to give us an opportunity to maybe live for Ireland and live for Britain, live for whatever it is, but maybe live in a better and in a different way.
I'm not sure how to respond to that, but I know that, as you say, Terry, there's a lot of politics and we could all point, point the finger at who did what and when and all that kind of stuff, but it's important that the society as a whole moves on and we do try to understand, as I was saying, where each are coming from and try to, to come to some genuine accommodation without trying to score political points. It's not easy. My journey was a fairly unique one and people are not going to reach that point easily. But I think if you're open to change, open to listening, then there's some hope that the society can move forward. I used to think about United Ireland, I would think it's more important to unite people than, than take away a border. My mother always said she'd be happy enough in Northern Ireland if things were fair. And largely they're fair now. There always be some bits of pieces going on, but largely. Uh, so that's the type of society she would have wanted. And I think that there are people on both sides that are trying to draw us back. The whole sectarian thing and the whole just the distant Republicans trying to fix on the young people that are un- unemployed and at the loose end and all that, and places like the Craigan. There seems to be some kind of activity here, even though it was a, a dairy man shot in Dungiven recently by dissidents. So this hasn't gone away, but if people like ourselves keep trying to change things, may happen. Peace process needs a lot of support from the ground up for it to work. It's working so far, but it's shaky. I think... In my view, the peace walls in Belfast are a symbol of where we're at. Uh, there's a long way to go. Unless we address the issues that are behind those peace walls, then we're not really moving that far ahead. We're moving a bit, but we still have a long way to go. We still have to keep working not to get too complacent that things are okay, just because there's not a lot of guns on the street. Yeah. Well, thanks, Terry, for your words in order they were they were good as i was saying mine's is fairly unique because i'm in a very a cauldron i suppose at that point of emotions and uh all, all that going on but the only thing that had happened is that if you open yourself to think outside the box outside your <coughs> tribe outside your normal line of thinking then there's some hope for change Thank you again. And Terry, thank you so much. And Orla, thank you so much. Thank you all for listening to this very moving session. Our speaker next week, our podcast is from Maureen Wilkinson. Thank you so much for listening. You can stay up to date with us on our social media pages. On Facebook, look for the Hollywell Trust. And on Twitter, it's at Hollywell T.